as far as I can tell, is unique about the book is compared to other union books or articles or essays is that I look at what Christ became at the ascension and then how that same immediate context talks about how we became that in him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, the ascension, that's, uh, that's the whole, it all stems from the ascension. Welcome to the podcast of the Kirby Lang Centre for Public Theology in Cambridge. Public theology is about how the very good news of Jesus relates to all of life. Our podcast is titled Christianity for the Everyday, dispatches from and for our daily lives. We like to quote Gerard Manley Hopkins' statement that Christ plays in 10,000 places. In our podcast, we aim to find those myriad ways in which Christ plays in our lives so that we can play alongside him. Join our team and invited guests as we explore Christianity and the everyday, from the most mundane aspects of our lives with their hidden glory to geopolitical issues that impact upon them. Thank you for giving Christianity for the Everyday a listen. And we want to remind you that Christianity for the Everyday is a podcast of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge. So to learn more about our work and other resources, which we have a lot, please head to kirbylangcenter.co.uk. And uh, you could just peruse the site. But one great thing you could do is just sign up for our email list. Today, we're talking with G.K. Beale. Um, he is the author of a new book called Union with the Resurrected Christ, Eschatological, New Creation, and New Testament Biblical Theology. Um, many of you will know his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, as well as a, his work on Revelation and, of course, Biblical Theology and the Old New Testament use. Anyway, so pretty excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Um, what sort of... Um, What's been on the radio dial the last few weeks for you? Well, uh, actually, I just gave a conference on preaching and teaching the New Testament use of the old for pastors and elders in Naples, Florida, and I'm getting ready to do it again uh, in Plano, Texas on April 28th. And um, yeah, we've got, uh, we're probably, we've, we've got about 100 signed up and about 25 online worldwide. So it's the first conference, uh, really. The one in um, Naples was for a church. This is just uh, generally, you know, we're advertising it in the North Texas Presbytery. But people from a few people from around the country are coming, which is encouraging. Love that you do that. Like, of course, trained pastors, but the just the lady. It's so good for people to get in there and sink their teeth. Um, question before I start the, the other questions. What's the coolest thing someone has been just like you've probably stoked people out so much. They're like, I love this guy. I'm going to give him a guitar. What has someone given you that's been like, what in the world? Thank you so much. You ready? Autograph Michael Jackson record. Um, what, are you, are you ready? Give me. You're going to go grab it. I was at a conference. And at the end of the conference. 
They gave me this. Turn it this way. No, like other. Yeah, there we go. Get get out of here. <laughs> a picture. That's a. What do you call these things? A bobblehead. Bobble. It's a bobblehead. And How it broke. In the world? My my head's broken partly. <laughs> let the let the let the listener know there's a spitting image of GK Bill bobblehead. How come I've never seen that on the uh, internet? I would like to buy those as stocking stuffers <laughs> for everyone. No. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, from, from reading the Bible, Dr. Bill, can we know, can we know or pretty much know the what God's cre- like intention was for creating humans and animals and the earth? Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, you have to start with some presuppositions. And uh, uh, one of them is that the Bible is the word of God. And so then if it's his word, then he has an intention in that word. And um, and then that word uh, uh, explains um, the redemptive historical uh, story that he started from beginning to end. And by story, I don't mean fictional. I mean, it's a real true story. And um, so, of course, uh, you got to begin right with Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where uh, God created Adam and Eve in his image and his likeness. And he doesn't go on so much there further to explain ontologically, that is, how they are constructed in his image. He explains it functionally. So he tells them to, you know, he blessed them. He says, subdue and rule, multiply and bear fruit and fill the earth. And so it's a, it's a functional thing. And so uh, just as God um, subdued chaos uh, and uh, uh, began to rule and to fill his earth, uh, and then he rested, so Adam, you begin to see, he uh, he is installed as a ruler, and um, he um, uh, is obviously getting ready to uh, bear fruit, and of course he does with uh, right. um, his, his first child, um, and then um, and then he was to rest. Well, mm-hmm. Adam should have subdued the chaos that began in the garden with, in my, this is my view, uh, with, with the serpent coming in. I think that uh, he was also a priest, which I describe in my book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. And the garden was also a sanctuary. And, you know, when an unclean snake comes in, then a uh, priest uh, should uh, slay such unclean things. Mm-hmm. And he did not do that. And so, um, uh, he doesn't end up getting the final blessing of rest and uh, fulfilling the full uh, functional image of God that he should have. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty nice. Some people who think that there's not enough context to determine if, um, you know, the, 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 the serpent was unclean. We're reading a lot of later scripture into the garden and that sort of thing. And, um, but my own view, and and I described this in uh, my book, the, uh, we become what we worship. I, I describe especially my what I call my uh, inner canonical exegetical perspective. Uh, and um, 
and it's um, and, and I, I don't call it um, um, intertextual or um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what the phrase that people use now is. Anyway, um, uh, the uh, I, I believe that you can let Scripture interpret Scripture. So that the later scripture informs earlier scripture, earlier scripture informs later scripture. Mm-hmm. There's some scholars who don't think that later scripture should uh, inform the earlier. And so mm-hmm. I see a both uh, a movement both ways in scripture. Some don't. And um, so that that's that's briefly an answer to your question. So I, I've heard it said before, <clears throat> something like, you know, if you could if you could preach a sermon at a Jewish synagogue, then it's not a Christian sermon. And so I, I wonder when you just opened with that that bit of like what it means to be an image bearer, for example, is that an acceptable sermon to to just pre- just preach that? Um, and then, of, of course, there there is the issue of sin and then it needs to be taken care of. And so the but the reason I even ask you, is that an acceptable sermon to isolate and just mention that and not Jesus and the cross and and the the one who's going to fit put everything to right as nt Wright says is 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 sin just a speed bump as it were and and jesus sort of like fixes it and then we get back to uh or we move forward to like what what the goal was all along or was it always about jesus well um, you know, and I believe it's John 5 that uh, the Jews have the scriptures and um, those scripture in Moses and, and Moses spoke about me. So we have to determine where, where, where did Moses speak about Jesus? And of course, in Luke 24, he, he talks about how um, they should have found him in all the scriptures. Mm. So then, well, is all the scriptures just the messianic prophecies, or um, uh, what is it? And I can I can elaborate on that a little further, but let me answer your question directly. Um, I think that if you stop there, if you're just preaching Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight and stop at what I said, then I don't think you preach a Christian sermon, even if at the end you say believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, we were praying for you, you know, you kind of yeah, get a footnote and it has no, uh, and it has no relation really organically to the sermon. No, you've got to, I think it's incumbent on us to, to preach Christianly, uh, to preach in a Christ-centered way. In some way, you have to organically through the scriptures, mm-hmm. find the connection to Genesis 126 to 28, to Jesus Christ, not just read him in there, but and so uh, you know what you would what you would do is you might have to do this pre- briefly. I mean, if you're preaching through Genesis, of course you're going to be focusing mainly on Genesis, but at some points along the way in every sermon, there ought to be a connection yeah. with the New Testament because the whole Bible is a Christian book, not just uh, the New Testament. And so I think that. Um, uh, you know, you would go to the New Testament and find there that um, Jesus is a king. He's uh, he's the last Adam. Um, he has subdued the devil, um, and uh, and he's bearing fruit through uh, the spiritual children that he is producing. And so, you, you would have to find 
actual texts that, that refer to that and actually are allusions back to Genesis 1. 26 to 28. You can find those, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 1, 6, and 10, uh, a number of passages in the book of Acts where it says that the word was increasing, and so were the disciples multiplying. Very intriguing use of Genesis 1, 28 there, and that's repeated throughout the book of Acts. And so um, so that's what you would do. You, you, you would have to do that. Now, you'd have to do that in a timely way. You don't have, uh, you know, uh, all the time in the world to preach. But on the other hand, if you just preach 10, 12 or so minutes and, you know, um, sermonettes make Christianettes. So um, yeah. you want, you, you, you know, you, you need a substantial time to preach and to make those points uh, toward the end. So, yeah. I always yeah. hate, I always hate when I leave church and my biggest takeaway is, all right, Jason, try harder. I want to know, like, I want to know Jesus did it you know, and then from that comes sort of this encouragement, like, I, you know, I, I am clothed with Christ, and I have sort of that, that rested conscious knowing, you know, um, you know, it's helpful yeah. to know that I'm an image bearer, and what my, you know, my like day-to-day -day function is, but at the end of the day, the thing I feel closest to is, is the dead body, this, this body of flesh I carry around that, that I don't do what I want to do, and I really hate it. So it's like, please, Pastor, give me the gospel. I'm I'm very interested in creation and everything, but I'm like, I need the gospel at the end of the day because that's where Satan hits me the most, and that's where I'm I'm at my worst. And um, and we're obviously going to get to this part. I saw that you were that your book. <clears throat> um, I think it comes out April 25th. Yeah, it's already out. You can start. Or I think you can buy it now. I just received about. 20 books in the mail of the hardback copy. Oh yeah. I have, I have it. I've been reading it, but I wasn't sure if it was like officially re released. But when I, when I heard you had a book on union, I thought, is this the un type of union that I, that I think it is, you know, or is this like a different version of union? Because there's not many, um, you know, I'm, I'm like a, your average average reader or a little more than reader, but I don't know of many books <clears throat> on this subject, but I, it's one that I find almost the, the most comforting for my day-to-day -day life, just living before God and living before man. And in the book, you say, you pretty much say that, that this book, your new book, Union with the Resurrected Christ, is a follow-up to your book, a, a New Testament Biblical Theology. And I was like, Okay. How is he? Wow. Okay. <laughs> so can you give us, cause a lot of people have read, read that book. Can, can you give us how this is sort of the, the follow-up? Yeah. The, the main theme of the new Testament biblical theology is that uh, Christ uh, life, death, and especially resurrection by the spirit was the beginning of the new creational kingdom and uh, the already and not yet in time beginning of the new creational kingdom. And so I went through and tried to show how, you know, different themes uh, in the New Testament uh, were facets of that. And the way I did that was I talked about an Old Testament storyline, and then I talked about a New Testament, and how the New Testament transformed or better um, uh, un uh, unfolded uh, the, the prophetic storyline of the Old Testament. And uh, so that the uh, 
the New Testament idea, it's a little longish of an idea, but it's the idea that Jesus Christ, uh, life, death, resurrection by the Spirit, uh, has resulted in um, Christ's new creational, already and not yet, kingdom. And it is uh, 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 to uh, result also in the church's worldwide uh, spreading out. Uh, and also in judgment for those who reject it, ultimately issuing into divine glory. That's, I'm not reading from it, that's generally the main idea and paraphrase. So, um, uh, so I took every part of that storyline, and that became the table of contents of my New Testament biblical theology. Okay. So what I'm looking at in this book is I'm looking at the resurrected Christ as a new creation, and, um, and I'm looking at those passages which actually talk about his resurrection and what he became at his ascension, uh, because really we're talking about ascension. Ascension is the second climactic phase of resurrection. Mm -hmm. Um so for and, and we're looking at this more from uh, the, the human uh, messianic perspective. For example, when Christ ascends, he's declared to be Son of God. He hadn't been declared to be that way earlier, even though he was said to be Son of God. Yeah. But he is he is he is now in an escalated way the Davidic Son of God because mm -hmm. of the resurrection, as Romans one three and four say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially in in fulfillment, for example, of Psalm two. Uh, this day I've begotten you, you are my son, God says. And, and of course, Romans 13 actually affirms that text of his resurrection. Mm -hmm. So um, so he became uh, an escalated king. Uh, he basically became an escalation of everything he started to be in his ministry. So he, he is, um, uh, as son of God, he's a king, but as son of God, uh, uh, he, he is also um, in, in a sonship relation with God. That's a, a little different facet of, king, uh, mm -hmm. of kingship. And so just to take an example, when we come into union with Christ, we're coming into union uh, uh, with him as uh, we, we, we partake of his kingship and why are we called adopted sons of God? We become identified with him as a son of God. Obviously, we're not divine, but we, we now functionally become uh, a part of that family. Mm -hmm. Now, the book basically is focusing on these, and there, there are 19 of these, that I, and I'm sure there are more, but I, in my book, I found about 19 of these things that Christ became and that we become when we come into union with him. But I, I find passages where for example, Christ is said to be, uh, at his ascension, a divine a son. And then I, 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 in those same contexts, it says that Christians have become sons. And so I'm, I'm actually looking exegetically, that is interpretatively, at how Christ's ascension and what he became is related to the believer in that same passage. Mm -hmm. You can find there are books uh, on union and, and, and essays it's flourished. It's been a flourishing industry over the past 10 to 15 years on the uh, more scholarly level, perhaps, but um, uh, nobody has focused on 
what Christ became as, at his ascension and how those same texts in the same context say that the believer has become because they are in union with him. So, uh, so there, there are a number, you know, of these, um, so like what, so in the book you have, I think you have like two, um, sort of mental pictures you give, like one is like of a, I think of a diamond. Right. Right. I remember the other one, but so can you, can you give us a mental picture? Uh, First of all, even what union means, like, so is Jesus like the the train at the beginning and then like me as a Christian, I'm the second, second, um, you know, boxcar and then the other Christians are behind me? Or am I in that that first engine and I'm like hidden in Jesus and I, I am the train as well? Like, or is, yeah. Well, I think that um, the, the, the idea is that we when we come into a living union with Christ. We are, he is our representative, so his acts represent us. Um, We are, um, we we participate, there's what you might call participation, in that when it says he died, that we died, he rose and we rose, so that we are participants Mm -hmm. in uh, what he did redemptive historically. And, um, and and that's not separate from representation, but but it's a, a little different um, a little different uh, facet. And um, th- those are really some of the central aspects of uh, of, of of union. It's but it's, it is a um, a living existential relationship that we come into uh, mm-hmm. when we um, when we trust in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, th- those so those are the two two main those are the two main facets of it. I mean, in, and in the book, you talk about participation, identification, incorporation. These are sort of like a it could kind of fall under an umbrella of identification. Um, that that's another way to um, to talk about it. Um, so. Uh, to define union as um, uh, incorporation, uh, identification, participation, but all of that really uh, sort of entails his representation of us. Mm-hmm. So, so the, I- the, the, the different facets of union then, identification, participation, uh, incorporation, um, and uh, so... So these, it's it's hard to separate some of these. Yeah, but I would call them different facets of union. Would I be a literal Larry if I were to say, okay, so I'm just going to run with participation? Um, does this mean that what Jesus did in history, you know, from from when he was born to um, when he was 33 years old, like that, I, I somehow participated in that? And like, does that mean all the good things that he did do and all the bad things he didn't do? And then I'll take it. This is my literal Larry. Does that also mean that I died for the world? Uh, The first part, yes, is the case, but not the second part. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, In that we were in that he represented us. 
there was um, um, uh, th that we were identified with what he did in history. Uh, we we participated in that. Um, so when we actually trust in Christ, we uh, begin to be in, we we are incorporated into Him. Mm -hmm. and uh, and come into union with him but that does entail then looking at the past a redemptive historical kind of uh, uh identification and participation once we trust in Christ of course we're you know when you look at this you can speak of um uh the historic what we what what reform people refer to as the historia salutis and the ordo salutis the ordo salutis traditionally has been seen to be the 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 order of how people are saved. So you've got election, calling, regeneration, sanctification, and then finally glorification. Mm -hmm. um, I, I agree uh, with uh, Richard Gaffin, um, who I feel like I'm developing in this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, who says that all these things happen at once when we come in to union with Christ. He was glorified, we're glorified. Amen. Uh, oh, that's so encouraging. And, and we were, uh, he was sanctified, we were sanctified. And um, uh, uh, he was justified, we're justified. And mm -hmm. so on. Now to say, how was Christ justified? Well, 1 Timothy 3 says he was vindicated at the resurrection. The, the Greek word dikaio vindicate, justify. He was actually justified uh, uh, in, in the sense that the verdict of the world was overturned. The, the guilty verdict was overturned yeah. when he was raised from the dead. Now, when we identify with him, that's true with us too. The guilty verdict of the world on our witness, on our uh, testimony to Christ, that is overturned, but so also is our guilt and our sin overturned. Now, that mm -hmm. part wasn't true of Christ, mm -hmm. but that that what is what becomes entailed in, in us uh, being justified with him. So, um, so all so those, all these things, and some, some of these things are in progress, for example, with the sanctification, mm -hmm. there, there, there's a real sense in which he was sanctified and set apart from the world at his resurrection. Mm -hmm. And when we trust in him, we are perfectly set apart. I think first Corinthians one, when it says to, to the saints in Corinth who have been sanctified, yeah, now, some people yeah. disagree with this view, but I think it's referring to their, um, their completely sanctified, set-apart status in Christ, mm -hmm. not an ongoing uh, sanctification. Mm. But then there are those passages, too, that speak of what we call definitive sanctification. Yeah. That's where we're regenerated, and uh, we're set apart from the old world, as was Christ, and set apart to the new world, as was Christ. But that's existential for us now. That's become existential. It's not perfect. Uh, and then, thirdly, progressive sanctification, having been set apart definitively. What does that mean? It can't be reversed. Mm -hmm. That has theological implications with per perseverance, reformed the theology mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. Arminian theology. Mm -hmm. But I, I understand that the true eschatology cannot be reversed. Mm -hmm. And so, then uh, at the end, 1 Thessalonians 5, there's consummative sanctification where we are existentially set apart. But all of this stems from our identification with Christ, who was initially set apart. Now, I, I've gotten a little bit on a rabbit trail here, 
um, because I was explaining the history of Salutis. That is, we're identified in a real sense uh, with what Christ did in the past. We were there. And so even though we weren't born, in some sense, obviously, we cannot scientifically explain it all, but in some sense, we really were there when he died for us and there when he rose. Mm. So we historically actually participate in I that, that, if you will, in a legal sense. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, uh, now the the uh, the ordo salutis, that's how I got into sanctification, is our present salvation. So and I, 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 I don't believe there really is an actual order. I would just call this the existential salutis. Sure. That is, you know, how, how we become saved. It all happens at once when we come totally. into Christ. Mm -hmm. All these, And that what that means is, and some people are troubled by this, is that we're justified and sanctified at the same time. Mm -hmm. But we have to realize the different facets of sanctification as well. Mm -hmm. So, So we are sanctified in the way Christ was sanctified, but then there are other aspects of that sanctification existentially. It, so, so, so there's this, this present uh, existential focus on salvation that traditionally is called the ordo salutis. Mm -hmm. And then there is uh, the historia salutis. So mm -hmm. um, there's what happens to us now, what happens to us in the past. And by the way, what happens to us now is because of what happened to us in the past. Mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. cause and effect. Which again uh, fits, I believe, more into a Reformed theological approach than a Wesleyan or mm -hmm. Arminian theological approach, mm -hmm. because our identification with Him determines. That's what determines our status, mm -hmm. not our own efforts. Mm -hmm. I know that Martin Luther talks about like um, being being righteous before God, and then righteous before you know, mankind, our, our husbands and our wives and the world. So like it, and you're, you're, you're talking around the same sort of stuff. How, how would you like, would you use that, that verbiage of righteousness quorum Deo and quorum mundo? And is it like, cause the reason I even ask is I, I know that I'm righteous before God because I'm, I am, I have union with Jesus. And so all of all the good stuff belongs to me, his life and burial, resurrection and ascension. So I know he's fully pleased with me because I know he's fully pleased with the son. But at the same time, I'm grouchy to my wife sometimes. And I'm always like, oh, why, why are you so rude to her? She's your wife. She loves you, man. And then so at that time, I know I at the same time, I know I could grieve God by the way I treat others. So. I'm like, is he pleased with me or not? <laughs> like judicially, legally, he seems pleased with me. But what do I do about that other thing? Yeah. Um, well, that that's the aspect. That's why we call it already and not yet eschatology and already not yet eschatological new creation because uh, we're not there yet. In other words, we've begun to... Um, uh, participate uh, in, in these things existentially. Take sanctification again. Mm -hmm. um, what's happened to us can't be reversed. Okay. 
But, but what has to happen is an increase in fruitfulness, in faithfulness, in sanctification, so that progressive sanctification. One Puritan put it this way, what I once was, I now am not, and what I now am, I will not be. In other words, what he once was, he's grown in, in his sanctification. But what he now is, if he continues to live, he will not be because he'll continue to grow. Mm-hmm. So what I once was, uh, I now am not, but what I now am, I will not be. Mm-hmm. And so, so yes, the, 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 there's, of course, a sense that uh, God is grieved with us. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And so, um, yes, uh, um, there's that existential sense in sure. which he's grieved with us. And at the same time, there is that sense that uh, he's like a true father. I mean, a father's not going to kick you out of the, shouldn't at any rate, a father's not going to kick you, a good father's not going to kick you out of the family for disobedience, but he will be grieved. Yeah. And I think we have to think of, uh, you know, God as father in that sense. Yeah, yeah. There's maybe there's like a judicial pleasing, if you will, or friends, yes. and then like a fatherly, which which actually makes complete sense. And then it it makes the fatherly displeasure grieving not as bad because it's like like you said, it's irreversible, and that's such a great source of joy. So, like the father, if he's a father who's a good father who works and provides to the family, well, as a when you're born into the family, you begin to participate in that provision. Mm. He's, he's, I'm going to provide for you for the rest of your life. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, until you get out of the house. And yet then as you're growing up, there's, there's going to be that, that fatherly discipline as well. Oh, participating in the provision. Oh, that is, that is so lovely. This is, it's, this is a very, um, this, this subject, see, it's pretty like, it's a lot of heady, but it's very, it's like the most practical and so as you were writing this book, what points were you like, ah, oh, Selah, like, or just rejoice? Like something what- different. Yeah. Now in my New Testament biblical theology, I, 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 I did sort of have spurts of practical application, but they were only spurts. I determined in this book at the end of every chapter on whatever aspect of union I was talking about, I would apply it and give practical illustrations Mm. and practical applications. So at the end of every chapter, I have practical, how does this affect the Christian life? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you, uh, as we're we're closing out here, you, would you say that a lot of people who talk about union and um, I know participation is like sort of a, a thing that a lot of participation and the language of in Christ. I feel like, and you mentioned that those are two things that are really sort of, those are focused on. And is it, are, are, is it safe to say that you're not that you're not focusing on those, but for you, is it safe to say it's something we really need to pay much more attention to is, is the ascension part? Definitely. That's the whole why- point. What Christ became at the ascension. And as I said, what I think is, as far as I can tell is unique about the book is compared to other union books or articles or essays is that I look at what Christ became at the Ascension and then how that same immediate context talks about how we became that. 
in him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, the ascension, that's, uh, that's the whole, it all stems from the ascension because mm-hmm. that, that's the escalation. See, that's the escalation that Adam never reached. Mm-hmm. He, if he had been faithful, he would have received escalated blessings mm-hmm. of an incorruptible body and spirit living in an incorruptible world mm-hmm. without any danger, with full assurance of God's provision mm-hmm. that nothing would be reversed. Mm-hmm. When you, I know when I'm talking about union, and I don't know if this is, this is, a right subject to bring in, but for some reason in my mind, the active obedience of Christ comes in that, 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 that subject. Does that have a place here when we're talking about union, the, the so-called active obedience of Christ? Well, it certainly does. And it has to do with the, um, with justification. When we come into union with him, we uh, are justified as he was. Now, why was he justified? Well, as I said, the world uh, uh, termed his life up to the point of his death as not good. Uh, it was, but that was a wrong verdict, and that verdict was overturned. And so, likewise, so his whole life was seen as a life of righteousness. Yeah. And when we come into uh, um, identification with Christ then uh, we are represented by that perfect righteousness. Mm. It's not just the righteousness uh, of a verdict declared not guilty. That's true, too. Mm. <laughs> Those are the two aspects. You know, there's positive and what we so- call so-called negative uh, mm. um, uh, justification. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of some Reformed people today don't like, uh, don't think that um, being identified with his active obedience is biblical. And in my New Testament biblical theology, in my chapter on justification, I argue against that Mm. and show that both aspects are present in the New Testament and that we are identified not only with uh, being declared not guilty by his death, but righteous by his life. That to me, honestly, Dr. Bill, that to me is the greatest part of the greatest story ever told because like I sometimes I feel like I had like a negative million dollar balance with God from all my sins. Every time I sin, it's another negative 500 bucks. And, but then, you know, growing up, I thought, Oh, Jesus brought me to a zero, but then every day, like, Oh, maybe I'll read my Bible and that give me a $5 deposit. Maybe I'll share the gospel. (laughs) That'll be like $20 deposit. Put it into the treasury of the saints. huh? (laughs) And then as soon as I'm, you know, pop off to some guy at the gas station, I'm instantly down to a zero. Even if I just memorize, you know, two chapters of Romans that brought me to nothing. But then there's something about this thought of, I actually have, because of union and all Jesus did is mine, all of those great things that he not only did he not do, but he did do belong to me. And that's why I, I was so excited to see this book. I was so like I said, I just I just recently got it, so I wasn't able to read a whole lot, but I was so encouraged by that. And then, so as as we're closing out here, um, I just want to remind the listeners that we're talking with J.K. J.K. Beale, and the book is called Union with the Resurrected Christ, Eschatological New Creation, and New Testament Biblical Theology. 
And as we close out, my final question for you is just now that we're talking about the struggle of the Christian life, where we carry around this body of death and we want to do these things, but we don't do them as like a different law at work. But I know that I belong to God because of his son. Um, my question for you is, what do I, what do I do now? What do I do? Like, what do I, after we get off this call and I just go and I live my life, what do I do? And especially in the context of what is the role of the spirit? And the only reason I bring that up, not to seem left field, but it's just, when I read the New Testament, it seems like the spirit is always this very, like, there's something about the spirit. It's like, oh, by the spirit, by the spirit, call apart two men who are filled with the spirit. Clearly, did you receive the spirit by work? It's like, there seems to be this emphasis on the spirit. And if you're already a Christian, the daily life. So yeah, if you could just close out, I would really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, the, um, the spirit, first of all, is that which regenerates us. That is the person of the Trinity who regenerates us. And also maintains our regeneration and causes our regeneration. So um, it, it's it's the spirit that is uh, doing the whole thing. So again and again and again, you're going to find in Paul, for example, the other books too, but you're going to find, and this is kind of a well-known discussion in some circles, you're going to find these imperatives imperatives, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But when Paul gives an imperative, it's followed by what we call the indicative, who we are in Christ. Mm -hmm. And sometimes part of that indicative is that, that we are in the spirit, because to be in Jesus, really, who is G? Well, who is the spirit? It's the spirit of Jesus. So um, we are in a certain sense, uh, yes, regenerated. We come into union with Christ through the Spirit, but um, uh, the the Spirit is in us. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians says. And what's encouraging about that is this. I never put the concept of the Spirit um, working righteousness in us throughout our Christian life with the idea of eschatology or the end times. And if some readers are not sure what I mean by eschatology, it just means study of the end. And when we say already and not yet eschatology, we say that we mean the end has begun in Christ and will be consummated when he comes back. And, and then, But then I realized the Spirit is one of the main things that was prophesied in the Old Testament of uh, of when the new creation would come and when Israel would be restored, they would get this end time spirit. Isaiah mm -hmm. chapter thirty two, for example, um, mm -hmm. and uh, Isaiah chapter fifty nine, and Joel chapter two, quoted uh, 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 in, in in Acts two. In fact, uh, I, Isaiah thirty two is alluded to in Acts one eight. Um, so it talks about the spirit coming. So the spirit. Um, uh, one of the key signals that we are true Christians, I think of it as a triangle, okay? 
called what I call the triangle of assurance. At the top is God's word. He's going to save us. First John 5, whoever believes that Christ is son of God, I'll receive eternal life. So we need to trust in God's word. That that we need to believe he's not a liar. And that can assure us that we really trust him if we're really sincere. Mm-hmm. Bottom right part of the triangle is if that's true, then we're going to increasingly be conformed to the image of Christ. That is, we'll increasingly do the works that Christ did. Mm-hmm. On the left bottom part of the triangle is the conviction of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And as long as we're in the not yet of the latter days, it's the Spirit's role to get us there. You begin a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so if we don't have conviction by the Spirit, now maybe we're not doing too well on the works here. Maybe we cursed out the guy at the gas station and uh, at the grocery store. And, um, well, let's say we were dominated by a sin for a while um, or a long time. Um, If there's not conviction, that's a signal that you Mm. may not know Christ, especially if that continues throughout your life. No conviction. Mm -hmm. The Spirit's not there, but if the Spirit is there, it's causing what we call uh, uh, eschatological dissonance. Yeah, Because you're not progressing toward the consummating eschatological end. And you should realize that and say, Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. Cause your spirit to work in me more. Cause me to be saturated with your word more. So works may not be doing too well in the right part of the bottom part of the triangle. Mm-hmm. But if you've got conviction, that's what I call ironic assurance. Oh, my gosh. That, and that the spirit is going to do that, and the spirit should spur you on so to good. more godliness. So the spirit's the eschatological completer, and, and he will very practically cause this this conviction in you, and that'll propel you on to reach the eschatological end. There you have it, folks. Pastor Beal in the house, on the pulpit, encouraging <laughs> us. Eschatological dissonance is, is going to be a part of my everyday life now. I that was, that, Amen. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't know, learn that on my own. I, there was a colleague of mine a long, long time ago. Who, who shared that with me. And so I've never forgotten it. So, so compelling, you know, um, you know, on, on that movie, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, the, the three guys, Everett and everyone else, they're, they're hungry. And one of them says, Hey, Everett, or do you want a gopher? And he said, no, one gopher will really, will, will merely arouse my appetite. So he just passed all together. My appetite is aroused for this book so much. And I'm like, we, <laughs> We got all over pretty quick there. So I just want to encourage the readers, the listeners to pick up the book, Union with the Resurrected Christ, Eschatological New Creation and New Testament Biblical Theology. Dr. G.K. Bill, thank you for your time. We really appreciate yeah. it. And you, you can get a good discount on the book at Westminster Books or Heritage Reformed Books. Okay. We'll, we will link those in the show notes. Those are always, those are the go-to spots. Thank you so much. <laughs>